This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. From Studio A inside the Rick L. and Vicki L. James University Center, this is Trine Line. Hello, I'm James Tu, Senior Director of Content and Communications at Trine University, and this is the Trine Line Podcast. Trine University President Dr. Earl D. Brooks II will discuss some of the latest happenings at Trine University and issues in higher education. Thank you, Dr. Brooks, for joining me today. Thanks, James. Good to be with you again. Yeah. uh, Well, to say a lot has happened since our last podcast would be a vast understatement. Um, From the perspective of Trine University, we made the decision to keep our campus open and in-person last fall, and we successfully made it through the semester. What steps did we take in advance that helped us make it through that semester? Well, obviously, a lot of uh, planning. If we remember uh, this time almost a year ago now, we moved, we uh, virtually shifted virtually over the weekend to online education. And then a week later, asked kids to vacate our residence halls as we become more and more aware of COVID. And at that time, what we did not know and it went into a period as you know of March and April and May when the campus really kind of went silent and black and we worked remotely and a lot of great work went on during that time although we were working remotely a lot a lot of work continued but then as we came back later in May and June we uh, reopened the campus did a lot of planning during that down period of time did a lot of planning over the summer and I would say that our success has been a real compliment to uh, first of all, our student life team, uh, our campus operations team, uh, the academic side of the house, and the faculty for the outstanding they, job they have done in the classrooms and the laboratories. You know, so much was constantly changing at the time between the state, uh, CDC, regulations, things of that nature. And so we sort of learned learned on the fly, but we put together a really great plan this fall that everybody executed. And and really proud of our students because our students really followed the protocols and procedures we put in place, and they were willing to make the sacrifices necessary to keep everybody safely distanced and, and allow us to do what we, we were able to do. Because without the cooperation of our students, it would just been impossible for us to had a successful fall semester, and all in all, I look at the fall as a really great success for us. We learned a lot. A lot of things we did well, a lot of things we tweaked over the break. I'm sure you're going to ask me about spring in a minute, but a lot of things we learned during the fall that really put us in a better position now to be six weeks into the spring semester. One decision we made uh, that was fairly unique among our peer schools was to hold athletic competitions in the fall uh, and the winter. Why are athletics important, and what preparations did we make for sports to happen successfully? Yeah, well, as you know, James, NCAA Division Three athletics has always been so important to try. And so, you know, over 1,200 student athletes on our campus participating in 30-some varsity and club sports on our campus. And again, restricted activity. We had a stricter protocol for those student athletes than we did the student body at large. We were doing PCR testing on a on a weekly basis. You know, we had the additional coaching and mentoring of our student athletes by coaches are saying, you know, one, take care of yourself, take care of team, be responsible. 
And we were allowed to, uh, not allowed to, but we were able to participate on a limited basis. Not a lot of schools were participating. And I think in total there were, I think, six NCAA Division three football games played in the fall of the year. I think we were able to uh, participate in two of those. We were very excited about. But give our uh, student athletes an opportunity to at least practice, at least have some intra-squad competition and a limited amount of competition uh, outside of intra-squad. And so our tennis teams, our soccer teams, football, everybody across the fall really had a pretty good fall season, although it was much, much abbreviated from what we were accustomed to. And we're able to do that, again, very safe and responsible. You mentioned that we learned a lot of things as the fall semester went on. What were some of the things we learned that we've used to improve student safety and learning for the spring? Yeah, so if you remember in the fall of the year, we we encountered a, a really a somewhat unexpected uh, record enrollment. We were out of housing. We actually had to house some students for the first week or so off campus until space became open to get everybody on campus which left us really limited on uh, space to be able to isolate and quarantine folks on campus. So a lot of the quarantine and isolation we had to do was off campus. Over the break, because of students graduating and moving on, uh, it created some additional space on campus. So we provided more isolation and quarantine space uh, on our campus. We uh, did more in our classrooms. One of the things we learned is the the classroom is not has not been the and a lot of evidence on this not just at Trine but a lot of other institutions and in schools that the classroom is not the point of spread uh, with COVID and we looked at students being distanced in the classroom students being mass uh, instructors behind plexiglass we added more plexiglass so that we could increase classroom capacity again safely and responsibly we looked at better ways to uh, communicate look at modes of uh, delivery to our students that were in quarantine in terms of constant communication with them, uh, meal deliveries that we've done, working with them online so that they don't miss a beat during that quarantine period and are able to matriculate back into the classroom. And, uh, you know, all of our safety protocols and measures we reviewed thoroughly, but really pleased that we were able to really have more of a commitment to in-classroom instruction than we were in the fall, where we were largely a hybrid format across the board. Now we were largely in-classroom seated capacity this spring. You mentioned about the housing issues. Did that play a key role then in the decision to uh, build a new residence facility that's going to open this fall? It, It did. You know, we were, again, unexpectedly ran out of housing. You know, we had record enrollment across the board in in the fall or even our spring numbers as we come back during the spring semester beat all of our uh, projections. And so coupled with the need of being out of space uh, this fall, coupled with, at this point, we're running ahead on deposits for fall of 21, along with our need at some point to move some of our older units offline, we elected to build a larger residence hall that could accommodate some additional growth, but also allow us perhaps to take the first step to take one of these older units offline on campus. With vaccines now being distributed, and at this point, at least it looks like the COVID-19 numbers in the state are going down, What's our outlook for the rest of the semester? Yeah, so I think as of yesterday, I saw the state positivity rate down to 4.2%. We know we were way, I don't know, 16, 18% at one point. If you know, if we go back to uh, Thanksgiving, December, early uh, January period, 
numbers have steadily come down. I think numbers in our county are just over 7%, and I think we're orange getting ready to shift to yellow in, in our county. Our positivity rate on campus at this very moment, I think, is 1.2%. So, again, we've been able to control it at about the whole time at about 25% of what the state or county average has been. So we're real, real happy with that. I would say while we're all uh, encouraged by that and cautiously optimistic, it's not a time to let our guard down. When you get a good response to things, you tend to ease up a little bit, and we can't we can't afford to do that. Uh, I think there's some time to go yet as we work our way through the vaccine. I think today is the first day that they dropped the vaccination level to age 60 now and above. So it's gonna it's gonna be a while before we're able to get not not students even, but even our faculty and our staff who who are more susceptible than our students get them vaccinated. Then hopefully by Later spring, over the summer, before they return in the fall, we'll be able to get everyone vaccinated at that point. So we're optimistic about that. And I think the combination of vaccine and what we're hearing about that and herd immunity, you know, probably 90-some percent of the students who have contracted COVID here or who have tested positive uh, have been asymptomatic. Many of them don't know it. It's just the fact we're going through testing protocol and we identify the fact that they have it. So you know, I think amongst that younger population, there may be more herd immunity going on than we than we realize. I'm not a scientist or a medical expert by, by any degree, but I think if we continue to see the the expanded rollout of the vaccine, like we're hearing of, you know, perhaps up to another two or three hundred thousand doses going to going to hit the hit the market fairly soon, then I'm hopeful that in summer over the fall, that fall is going to look a whole lot more normal to us, although I don't think it will be completely gone, but I think we'll be in a much better place than we are today, just like we're in a much better place today than we were going back to last March to when we started in the fall of the year to where we're at now. It's a, It's been a slow, steady progression. You mentioned, too, how high the state infection rate was in December, early January, which is when we were on an extended break. I mean, looking back in hindsight, that was seemed to be a really good choice to let the semester end early at Thanksgiving and then have the students come back later because they weren't here when really the uh, outbreak seemed at its worst. It looks like a, a brilliant decision, but you go all the way back just trying to find ways to keep folks safe. And the biggest rationale for us, as you know, when finishing semester earlier at Thanksgiving is so that we would not send students away from campus for a week or so, give them that opportunity to to uh, become infected or attract the virus, then bring it back on campus. Uh, it was the right decision for, uh, I think, a lot of reasons in that we got out of that surge because there was a surge, I think probably more so coming out of the Thanksgiving break than even after the Christmas break. And I think I think the surge was so bad after the Thanksgiving break it probably consciously helped everyone to uh, to put in place better practices over the uh, the Christmas break, but I don't think we ever hit the numbers from Christmas that we that we thought we would. But yeah, in hindsight, we're proud of that. This semester, as you know, we've eliminated spring break for much the same reason as we uh, all know. Even a lot of employees are used to sometimes of getting that week away to Florida or the beach or or uh, somewhere. And while we hate. Uh, to miss that this year, again, we think that's the safe thing for us to do to get these uh, students through the spring semester safely, get those graduates out on the 
market, get kids into internships and co-ops and hopefully jobs for the summer that weren't there last year. You kind of mentioned that things may not be like they were in fall 2019 when we come back this fall. What kind of impacts do you think the pandemic's going to have on higher education in general looking ahead from here? Well, I think most of you internally somewhat get a smile out of uh, how technologically illiterate I am to be leading a school of higher education and, and technology. But for me, you know, the first time I really had encountered or dealt with Zoom was when the pandemic started. And uh, not that I'm an expert on it now, but I mean, my goodness, there's probably not a day goes by that any of us are not on, on, on Zoom. And what, I've, what I have found, although I'm not particularly a, a fan of it, because in higher education business, we're about, we're about engagement with, with students and, and people. But it has been highly efficient. I mean, you know, if you look back to when we uh, had to shut things down in March, April, May, we did a we did a ton of work. I mean, admissions folks kept recruiting, coaches kept working. We had our regular uh, department meetings and university meetings, our planning meetings of COVID of what's the fall going to look like and start down there. And so they they were very highly efficient. And so I think I think some of that will stay around. Uh, probably more so maybe for other businesses than for higher ed, but I think higher ed will find some use for it. The other thing, because we were just thrust into the online education piece so quickly, we've learned so much about online delivery and virtual education and virtual delivery because we've had our our faculty were trained very briefly going into the spring. Then they had uh, after the spring semester, training over the summer, training going into the fall, another semester. And so I think we've become highly uh, efficient and much, much better with online and virtual education than we were prior to the pandemic. As a result, you would have to think that would help to improve the quality uh, instructionally across the board. By We always had folks that were really proficient in it and been teaching. But then once you flip a switch and you have folks – going to online delivery that perhaps had never delivered in that format before. And it was a little bit of a challenge to them. So uh, I think we're in a much better uh, position for that. It was pretty easy the other uh, morning to decide, well, we won't have uh, 8 o'clock classes, you know, from the snowstorm. We'll wait and open campus at 9.30, and everybody can just deliver classes virtually and online, mm-hmm. just like they're normally meeting. Prior to COVID, that would have been a little bit more difficult call for, for us to make. So I think there's some some improved – uh, efficiencies all the way around from Zoom to the virtual world of things we can do to meetings across the country. Uh, you know, in our advancement work and development work with alumni, uh, have found we've had a lot of a lot of touches with folks now of of by using that virtual venue to meet with folks versus where we actually have had to travel in the past to to see folks all the way across the country. How do you think the pandemic's impacted some other challenges that higher education was already facing? Um, I know you and I had talked before the pandemic hit about, you know, that there's a shrinking number of high school graduates. Uh, International enrollment was also kind of dropping, again, prior to COVID-19. How what impact has COVID-19 had on those uh, those type of issues? Yeah, it's been uh, – there are several uh, institutions that are, that are really struggling that had faced, uh, I think, both enrollment and financial issues pre-COVID. We were starting to see the tip of that iceberg with the shrinking uh, demographic. 
if you would. And it's and it's really all over the board because of institutions, no criticism all, who have made decisions, some to open sooner than others, some that are still working remotely. And so it puts many institutions that have elected to stay in a remote and virtual format probably at a disadvantage on the on the recruitment uh, front and again not critical of anyone we elected consciously to come back and over the summer in june july and august uh, have visits we had visits all during the fall of the year scheduling an hour apart uh, making sure we clean areas afterwards and, and and all those necessary steps very successfully but but the other thing that's put everyone in a and including trying the same for me, you can you can no longer do high school visits. You know it's virtually impossible to do that now. We do uh, have online visits that we can do. We're starting to see some limited high school visits to go, but everybody lost high school visits. Then it's coupled with uh, SAT and ACT testing or lack of because lack of testing sites. Uh, fewer students taking it, so everybody has to shift to uh, test optional. That is relying on high school transcripts versus test scores for admission. And so it's just caused all of us to think differently with regard to uh, admissions, the enrollment process. Then, then based on where institutions were at financially, the amount of aid they might have received in the, in the first round of stimulus funding, CARES 1, some institutions were able to escape uh, furloughs and layoffs. Uh, some were not, and so all of those all of those things have really set back those institutions that were really struggling with enrollment and finances prior to the pandemic. The pandemic has really escalated uh, the bad news for many of those institutions. For trying going into the pandemic, we were in a very good position both in enrollment and financially um, we, we we were you know uh, a little bit uh, scary you know at at march we were actually about eight percent down on student deposits and that's that's what is so remarkable about the work that was done in march april may while we were closing over the summer to flip that from that point in march going into the pandemic and the and more or less what i keep referring to as the shutdown mode for those two and a half months moving from there all the way to a record class in the fall and being out of housing. And the thing that, I'm, that, I, that I am proud of, and I think that's a testament to everyone who works here, is our financial position was good. And as a result of that, one of the things that was very, very important to me during that period of time was that we do everything we can do to protect our employees, that we did not have to furlough or lay anyone off, that was important, that we were able to uh, give raises and bonuses, although it may not have been of the magnitude everyone would like to have, that uh, obviously in a, in a pandemic like this, you don't incur some of the expenses you normally would have. You know, we didn't have a spring commencement. We didn't have a homecoming. We didn't have a December commencement. We didn't have a scholarship gala this year. We didn't have all the athletic travel we would normally have. So when you couple the revenue success of our enrollment and the cutback in our expenses and already in a pretty good financial position uh, really put us in a really, really strong state. And I was really committed to doing my best to try to protect our employees who were the people totally responsible for us being in the position we're in today. And I'm 
proud we were able to get through that period of time and be where we're at today. What long-term impact, if any, do you think the pandemic will have on Trine University specifically? You know, this sounds really strange. Uh, we're probably one of the few institutions that that's going to experience a record year. We're going to experience record growth. We're going to probably experience a record financial year. We were really strong in the uh, state, the region, the Midwest already. And I actually think we probably have uh, put some more distance between us just because we went into this from a position of strength. But who would have thought in a year like this we would have gotten stronger? You know, you would probably have hoped you stay flat or you decrease slightly. You would never have dreamt we would have been in this in this type of position. And so I think, I think again, a, a, a good plan, keeping people safe. Uh, our students and parents, parents wanted their students back here. They wanted face-to-face instruction. They wanted to see us open our doors. They wanted seated classrooms. We wanted to open our doors to prospective students and families for visits to come to attend Trine in the future doing it safely and responsibly the special culture we have here and the work that people do all really uh, put us in a very uh, unique position not only now but i think going forward into into the school year of 21 22. again kind of flipping from what looked like could possibly be an enrollment shortfall to again our enrollment going up in the fall. And that's in spite of national trends that said, you know, nationwide college enrollment dropped about 4% overall. Um, I know you mentioned the work of admissions staff. Are there any other factors you think that that played into the fact that, again, while nationally enrollment was down, you know, we still were building on ours? Obviously, I I always have to give kudos to uh, our athletic department and our coaches who do a phenomenal job year in year out recruiting for those 30 some varsity and club sports that we talked about earlier you know i think we're uh, an institution that's about service to our students Uh, i think everybody realizes the quality we have built from the classroom to the residence halls to the laboratories to the facilities to the internships co-ops we provide to the job placement we provide and and for us talking about culture it comes natural to us that's something that we sort of take for granted around here and it's not necessarily natural at all institutions of higher ed to me what we do at trine is what higher education ought to look like and it's what we put into practice every day and I think we do a, a, a very very good job of it and we take it for granted but we don't realize how good we are now there's some danger in that because uh, you don't ever want to be complacent you know I always talk about continually reinventing ourselves or being creative and what do we do next that continues to set ourselves apart and I think we've done a, a, a really good job of that and I think as a result of all those fac- uh, factors families realize that students want to be here they know there's a job outcome for that investment you know another exciting factor for us uh, this year and I, th- I think probably you saw the chart if we compared ourselves to like our 25 of our peers in the region average debt load for a student that leaves here is less than $27,000 for a four-year degree and a 99% chance of a job placement 
that's a pretty good investment for a, for a family and a prospective student. And one of the things I think we continue to do a good job of is controlling our cost on an annual basis and making sure we're making those scholarship investments so that we can make a, a trying uh, education affordable for students. And you mentioned briefly about the uh, employment rate. And again, even with all the disruption to the economy this last year, we still had a very strong employment rate for our class of 2020. And we maintained more than 99% enrollment over the last seven years. What do you think about the education students get here at Trine allows them uh, to go out and succeed even in a down economy? Well, I think it's the combination of what takes place in the classroom with real world experience. You know, we're all the time talking about internships, co-ops, but uh, bringing real world experience to the classroom. And I think all of our professors, regardless of discipline, do a really, uh, really good job of that. Companies seek and hire our graduates year after year, so they come back to uh, to hire uh, trying graduates. You know, we had a very successful outdoor career fair in the fall at the MTI Center. Very well attended. It's pretty pretty exciting. I think it's maybe something we ought to consider for the future when you talk about things mm-hmm. post-COVID that we retain. I thought that was a very successful. You're a little dependent on weather. But, again, folks coming here, students having uh, those opportunities. And, again, I think it's that blending of theory and practice that they're well-prepared. And, you know, in uh, March and April and May, we actually saw internships, co-ops go away. We saw uh, graduates-to-be who actually had job offers pulled right before graduation. We were very concerned about retaining that. Then as we kind of come out of things into June, July, August, September, by the time we measure within that six-month period post-graduation, we were back to 97% for this past year, which is pretty phenomenal in a pandemic, but allowed us, as you just mentioned, to retain our seven-year average of 99% job placement. But that's that's a lot of good work by career planning and placement uh, staff, as well as our faculty who have all of those real manufacturing industry business connections. We just announced actually today that uh, David Fraboni is going to be joining us as vice president for advancement. Can you tell me a little bit about David and uh, what he's going to bring to this role for the university? Yeah, so excited about David. David comes as a result of a national search we did led by uh, R.H. Perry. Uh, David comes to us with 35 years of advancement experience and probably in my 21 years here, David probably is the most experienced uh, development person that that I've had the pleasure of hiring comes to us most recently from uh, uh, Wentworth Institute of Technology in uh, Massachusetts. He was there on a one-year appointment through the interim registry. Uh, he's been at uh, uh, West Georgia uh, University and in, in Georgia, obviously Georgia State. Uh, but David's been around a long, long time and a lot of uh, vice president for advancement roles. David's a, a team builder. Uh, comes also at a good time for us as we, uh, in December, just surpassed our capital campaign goal of $125 million and hit the $128 million mark. And so we're using a consultant now, Martin Lundy, to come in and do a review of our process, our protocol, is our, is our team the right size, look at our data, help us get ready for the next campaign. And David's been through uh, several campaigns in, in his career and anxious for uh, 
him to be part of that now as we get that information. And David starts with us on March the 15th, so uh, uh, right, right around the corner. But we're very, very excited to welcome he and his uh, wife, Linda, to the Tryon family. Well, we've talked a lot about COVID-19, but another thing that happened last year or since the last podcast that we did was there's been a presidential election and a change in administration. And one of the things I know that uh, President Biden's platform involved was dealing with student loan debt. And I know there's talk about possible student loan debt forgiveness of maybe ten thousand or fifty thousand dollars, or what do you think is the likelihood that this is going to happen? I think he was getting uh, probably a lot of colleagues to encourage him to look at the fifty thousand dollar number. Most recently, from what I'm reading and seeing uh, from uh, NICU out of Washington, which is the National Association of Independent Colleges and University, our chief lobbying group, as well as speaking with some of our federal legislators in the state of Indiana, 50,000 is less likely, but more likely is the forgiveness of $10,000 in college loan. The uh, $50,000 number, is, I'm, I'm sure, is still out there and being discussed, would, would, would have some caveats with it. That I think they would forgive $10,000 a year for X amount of community service or giving back uh, to a uh, a community. I think at some point in time, we're going to see some level of debt forgiveness, but most recently what I'm hearing, that number looks more at the moment like $10,000 versus $50,000. What kind of impact do you think this legislation, if it goes through, will have on higher education? Well, I think uh, it's probably uh, a good thing for any of any that occur debt. I, I don't know if there's a debt level attached to how much you get or if you just get $10,000 uh, flat uh, across the board. Probably the, the, the bigger concern for everyone at this point is the, is the funding for that. Where does that funding come from? And if you forgive $10,000 across the board for that number, what's that equate to, or 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 fifty thousand uh, dollars? Going back again to a trying education, one of the things we're we're proud of is that less than twenty thousand twenty seven thousand dollars for a four year degree, and so it's still in in my mind is a lot of work higher education do, has to do that would allow students to accumulate six figures of debt for a four year degree. And uh, to me, that's a lot of what's gotten us in uh, the position that we're at with that level of debt for students. You understand a little bit more graduate school or medical school and things of that nature, but but some of these numbers are pretty astronomical for a four-year program. So I think there'll be some uh, debt relief coming, but perhaps not some of the high numbers that we heard during during the campaign trail. If it goes through, do you think it'll have any impact on us here at Trine? I'm sure there are students uh, here that that most likely will benefit from it. What I don't know is going forward. Uh, let's say you and I had occurred debt from the past, and we're sitting on that debt, and we get that relief. What does that mean for someone new coming in and starting to borrow? Is the bar reset at that point and, and going forward? So what I don't know is how it impacts, if it impacts at all, future borrowers versus students who have already uh, have accumulated debt due to their education. 
another thing, and I don't think that uh, Joe Biden talked about it maybe as much as, as, say, other candidates such as like Bernie Sanders, but Mm -hmm. I know there's, you know, people floating ideas about some sort of free tuition, maybe to a two-year college or uh, something like that. Do you think anything like that will make it through and what impact would that have? Quite a bit of discussion about free two-year community college, some discussion about uh, four years of public uh, support or four-year, not public, but four-year higher ed support. And that piece comes, as I understand it, would be that the federal government would would fund a certain portion of uh, allowing that free education, but there would be a percentage of that pushback and an expectation that the states would cover a portion of that also. Uh, I think legislatively that will get some pushback. The other, the other pushback and component to all of this is uh, that's a pretty astronomical number debt-wise when you get, when you get to thinking about it, even at the community uh, uh, college level. So I, th- so I think there will be – and I think there's uh, quite a few uh, members of uh, – President Biden's party, as well as some of his cabinet members that feel very strongly uh, about free tuition at some point, but it comes circles back to uh, uh, the debt issue. And then I think a lot of pushback once then they try to start pushing a percentage of that uh, uh, forgiveness or debt or free or whatever you want to call it, when they push that back to the states to pay. What other potential changes at the federal level are you and other college presidents keeping an eye on right now? Well, we're keeping an eye right now on the new uh, stimulus package that's just out there at the moment, $1.92 trillion, whatever it is that the Biden administration proposed. There's $40 billion uh, initially in the bill for historically uh, black colleges and universities and public universities. Oddly enough, privates were excluded from that. And so uh, we've been doing uh, lobbying, uh, all the presence of the uh, private institutions. We've made a concerted effort here in the state of Indiana with the independent uh, colleges of Indiana presence as well, as well as NICU, our federal lobbying group, and believe now that we will be included in that. But it will give us another round of Uh, stimulus funding. Not sure yet, but both pieces of stimulus funding we received so far, a significant portion of that goes back to students of highest need or risk that have been affected by the pandemic. And so it really, again, helps narrow that gap of affordability and keep uh, those students in in school. Uh, We've talked about debt relief, free tuition, probably uh, most likely a little bit more of an easing and opening up of the international market on uh, uh, easing up on visas. Uh, we we saw some contraction of that during the Trump administration, although our international numbers have been uh, fairly positive and we continue to grow, but I think we'll probably see an opening up of the international uh, market. Probably another uh, change and overhaul in uh, Title IX law. We had, we had just come through and fixed Title IX law and regulations with the Obama administration. Then we seesawed to another side with the Trump administration. Now we're going to seesaw back. So I think we'll see those regulations change again. Biden administration has a great deal of interest in doubling the size of the Pell Grant for the neediest of students. So Pell Grants 
currently I think it's sixty four hundred and thirty five dollars or something like that. so double it over twelve thousand uh, dollars of aid for the neediest students that's a that's a big initiative that's a big price tag but it does go to the neediest students and so you know if you take a if you take an Indiana student for example and the Pell Grant were doubled and then Indiana has the best uh, state award program for kids of high need and Indiana st- uh, student literally could go to any school in the state they wanted to so uh some uh, possibility of earmarks coming back, uh, which is which is kind of interesting after a after a hiatus. So there'll be a lot of projects out there that folks will try to attach funding to that potentially could have uh, some impact for uh, for higher education. You know, back in the in the days uh, we had some uh, successful uh, earmarks here that helped trying both on the technology front, and some of the things we've done in engineering and and technology so that's new and then a uh, simplification of the FAFSA form which has been talked about for years about how burdensome the FAFSA form was for free uh, financial aid that form has been simplified some so some changes uh, things I would say probably uh, good and, and and bad as happens with every uh, administration but certainly nothing I don't think that's overly burdensome or overly concerning to us the biggest issue are all the things on uh, free tuition student debt relief and doubling the Pell Grant is is back to how does the government figure out that they that they pay for all these items with such a big price tag all right well once again uh, thank you Dr. Brooks for joining me today thanks James Um, always a pleasure to be with you to those of you listening uh, check back for more insights from Dr. Brooks on the next Trineline podcast Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.